You guys know I like props. So I mentioned to the team, wanted to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis as an illustration or two. And so they just decided to bring C.S. Lewis's study right here and get it all set up. It's pretty cool, huh? Actually, this is for production. It's for today. We intentionally wanted to have it for our services, but it's also for production this afternoon at 4 p.m. called C.S. Lewis on stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. And so... Maybe you'll even want to come back. So a lot of you already have tickets, but we'll have some available. But you look at this and you think, okay, what's the significance of C.S. Lewis's study? Some of you are familiar with him, some of you are not. He was one of the premier, if not the premier apologist, Christian apologist in the 20th century. An apologist is some, not someone who's apologizing for Christianity, but someone who defends it. He was a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Oxford University for almost 30 years. And then he finished out his career with a nine-year stint at Cambridge University in England. Lewis died on November the 22nd, 1963. Anybody know what else happened on that day? It's why one of the great literary figures and Christian figures of the 20th centuries passed into eternity without a whole lot of people paying attention because it was the same day that JFK was assassinated. A few years earlier, 1947, on September the 8th, Time Magazine put C.S. Lewis's portrait photograph on the cover of their magazine, and the caption below said, Oxford's C.S. Lewis, and then underneath it, his heresy, colon, Christianity. He had been a vehement atheist for almost 20 years when in his early 30s he came to Christ and then over the next few years wrote about 34 volumes defending Christianity, exposing some of the deep things that we grapple with in terms of our lives and our journeys. His classics like Mere Christianity, for any skeptic I would recommend Mere Christianity. We have copies or at least did out in the back at our book table you can get afterwards or The Abolition of Man is just an amazing uh, treatise on uh, relativism. Um, a grief observed about grief, the problem of pain, uh, surprised by joys, his autobiography. Over and over again, he described who we are as human beings in the presence of God and the connection between the two. Now, some of you might not know any of those books, but probably you've heard of maybe a story called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia. In fact, if you're thinking, man, boy, those other books sound kind of heady, uh, well, then try Chronicles of Narnia. They're actually brilliant in their simplicity. They're not simplistic, but they are simple. And what Lewis did is he wrote those in the early 50s is he, he encapsulated through this magical land of Narnia into which kids would be transported through things like magical wardrobes with no warning. It was a parallel universe, a parallel reality, and supreme in the land of Narnia was its creator and its redeemer, its rescuer, Aslan, the great lion. And if you're looking for some reading, go through the Chronicles of Narnia this summer. To get you started, thought I might 
I mean, we've got his study. Why don't we read a little bit? How about from the silver chair? If you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll remember the silver chair. And as I'm reading this, I want you to think about something. What have you been thirsty for this week? Significance? Love? Security? Intimacy, beauty, truth, goodness, resolution, triumph. Where is the stream, the ultimate stream where all of those things are found? We're gathered because we believe deeply that they're found in this river of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jill is one of the children that's transported with her buddy Scrub, what a name, and they end up in Narnia and immediately they get separated. And Jill finds herself lost in a wood like Dante's wood that we talked about a few weeks ago in the middle of my life I woke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost and she's lost in the wood but she's desperate and she hears the sound of what she's thirsty for some running water the wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel 10 times thirstier than before, she did not rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lines in Trafalgar Square. And she knew at once that it had seen her for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. But if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. And for a second, she stared here and there wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said it again. If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. 
a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. <laughs> I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May, may I, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. <laughs> the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. But the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Uh, will you promise not to, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do, do you eat girls? Asked Jill. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. What have you been thirsty for this week? At an ultimate level, there's one stream. There's one water source on the desert floor of our lives. There are so many things going on in that story and you can go as deep as you want. But one of the things I love about it, knowing a lot of Lewis's thought and where he's coming from, two of the greatest desires in Lewis's life are combining, kind of exploding in that story. Desires that he wrote a lot about, talked a lot about. Uh, one desire was for what he referred to as joy, uh, capital J joy. It, it, something that transcended anything that he could get just from this planet. Uh, the desire that he had for it, he referred to by a German word, ache, longing. It's what accompanies every human being. It's part of the imprint of us being created in the image of God. 
you're thirsty, you're thirsty, you're thirsty. All of us are thirsty ultimately for the same thing that he would say. And his, his, his thirst for joy uh, went way back into his childhood. His earliest memories of this thirst, this Azinza, was when he was six years old. His family moved to a house on the outskirts of Belfast. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you know the name of the house. The nickname was Little Lee. And he remembers when he was six years old, looking at the di- in the distance to the Castlereagh Hills uh, that the Irish would brag about often. And he said, those hills evoked something in me that they would not satisfy. They, they reminded me that I was thirsty for something. It was, it was, and, and he would often describe it in terms of beauty, but it goes more than beauty. Uh, he would refer to it as a thread that accompanied him throughout his journey where after he abandoned the church and camped in atheism and moved from atheism into pantheism and so many other forms and then began to emerge out of that morass of confusion into an embrace of deism and then theism and then ultimately biblical Christianity. He said the entire time, my zinsot for joy always and my thirst for what only I discovered only Jesus could provide is what accompanied me. So that's one desire that's represented in that story, his desire for joy. But there's another desire that's also in the story. If you folks that are big on grammar, my apologies for the double negative that you're about to get whammed with. But he desired not to meet God. He didn't want to have anything. First, he didn't believe God existed. Then he was afraid that he did. And in this story, very simply within a children's story, but brilliantly of somebody that only the mind of C.S. Lewis could construct, he paints this portrait of being thirsty for a stream that was guarded by what he did want. What he desired was guarded by what he didn't desire. And the two went against one another. And not only that, the brilliance is overlaid with a biblical substance and foundation. John chapter four, some of you know the story there. It's the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that was lost. If you've got your Bible, turn to John four. If you don't, turn your attention to the screens. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, ask us in the back. We'd be glad to give you one as our gift. The notion of having this thirst that accompanies always is embedded in this text, in this story. A thirst that is not wishful thinking, he actually referred to it as thoughtful wishing. When we have those rare moments of silence and we say, what am I thirsty for? It's gonna eventually lead us to the water of Jesus. This Samaritan woman had been married five times. We don't know all the cultural factors, but bottom line, she. She was seeking to quench some of her thirst, her soul thirst through men, marriage. We don't know why the marriage has ended, but she was now living with a guy who's not her husband. This is not 21st century Hollywood, it's first century Palestine. It's remarkable, her diligence to quench her thirst. It's ostracized her from her friends and family. That's why she comes to the well in the middle of the day instead of when everybody else does in the Palestinian desert at dawn and at dusk when it's cooler. But she gets there, Jesus is waiting on her. She doesn't know who he is. 
He asked her for a drink. They started dialogue. Verse 10, John 4, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The Hebrews would refer to it as maimchaim. Literally, it was water that was fresh. It was running water. It wasn't stagnant water. But figuratively, spiritually, it's the water that our souls most need. It's the waters that only God can provide. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Is it also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's what he says to me about my pursuits and you about your pursuits this past week. So how'd it go? Did you reach that financial goal that you've been striving for your entire life? How are we doing? We're still thirsty. What, all those things, the, the vacation that was the dream vacation, boy, it was great, but did it really do what we were hoping it would? How about the boat? You broke par? Boy, universe is different now, isn't it? Everyone who drinks this water is still going to be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's starting to get it, but not completely. So he told her, go and go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. By the way, that was not a shaming statement. He wasn't shaming her. He's doing surgery. For you, the question would have been different for me. Uh, What's been the dominant mirage that I've been after this week? He would say, hey, go get that. Go get your golf clubs. Come back. Let's talk. Go get your bank account. Go get your degrees. Go get your title. Go get your keys to the boat. Go get your addiction. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. I'd be uncomfortable too, so she does what I would have done. She changes the subject. Let's talk about something else. A big topic of conversation between Jews and Samaritans was worship, mode of worship, where you worship, when you worship. Jews were known as the half-breeds because they had intermarried in, in exile. And so she brings that up. She thinks she's changing the subject, but she's not changing that. This is where Jesus has been leading her all along because every one of us is a worshiper. There's never been a human being who didn't worship. We all are experts actually at worship. The question is not whether we worship, but what we worship. And what we worship is directly related to what we think will quench our thirst. And we make sacrifices in our worship. It's not an ancient pagan thing, it's a contemporary thing. True worship always involves sacrifice because we make sacrifices for that which we think will ultimately fulfill us. And the only time our worship is in spirit and truth is when we're worshiping the living God. So no surprise here. 
Woman, that Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So here we go. Yet a time is coming, and then in English, four astounding words, and has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers Get this, the Father seeks. Seeks. This relates to some of what we talked about last week. God seeks your worship, not because of an ego thing. He's created us for himself, and he is seeking us to, to get us back home. And we've got that, that thirst in us. Lewis refers to it as that music that we're born remembering. He wrote a poem, and called Vowels and Sirens, where he said that. And we're all born with this distant note and symphony playing, and we're constantly our whole lives trying to trace it back to its source. And here we're told that the Father is seeking us to get us back home. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus carries the same thing. For the Son of Man came uh, to set up shop. Many find he want, if anybody wants to just volunteer to be part of his religion, he'd be happy to have you and be encouraged. No, the Son of Man came to seek. To seek and save the lost. So whatever I'm going after with my thirst, He's coming after me. You guys remember years ago, I told you my, my, my son, Joel, and me hunting for elk. If, I'm sorry if some people struggle with hunting, and if you do, just use the word harvesting in its place and sounds better. And even more comforting to you will be that if you're concerned about animals living, I'm your guy for being a hunter because they are always safe when I'm hunting them. I never get them. I never find them. But my son Joel and I was 11, we're tracking an elk through six inches of Rocky Mountain powder. And we gave up after a couple of hours, we left the trail. Some guys came up to us and said, well, did you see him? We said, see what? And they said, see the mountain lion. We said, what are you talking about? Said a mountain lion's been tracking you. Said, no way. So we go back, sure enough, there's the elk's hoof prints. Inside those are Joel's and my boot prints. And inside our boot prints are the giant paw prints of a mountain lion. While Joel and I were going after what we wanted, we were being chased and tracked. That's exactly what Jesus is telling this woman. While you've been after what you thought would seek your, your ultimate thirst, the Father's been seeking you. He's been seeking you, seeking you. And Lewis, one day finally said, he's got me. He said, I, I became the most reluctant convert in all England, but he tracked me down. He was born in 1898, and they moved in when he was six years old to the house, and three years later, his mother died, crushed him. And that's when he began to toss out any notion of God and religion. He was already on shaky ground, really not believing it. But at that time, he thought, well, I'm going to pray and see if God does anything. And he, God didn't. His father was crushed. His, his father was a solicitor or a lawyer and then became even more domineering. And 
uh, dysfunction arose and you started seeing a number of life experiences that shaped Lewis and his posture before God. Take a look at the list. There's, you'll, you see them in your own life. There's loss. All of us have experienced loss. That impacts our view of God and his ability to address our thirst. The whole notion of uh, family of origin and what goes on in our families, that happens. Trauma. Lewis, when he was a late teenager, went off to World War I and was horrified by the brutality and the evil. And he said, no God, no God could exist and tolerate this. He came back and continued to engage with mentors, but his first mentor had been when he was a teenager. He officially adopted atheism when he was 14 years old. And then a couple years later, his father sent him off, a year later, father sent him off to join his older brother for a tutor. The tutor's name, it was in England, sent him from Ireland to England. The tutor's name was Kirkpatrick, V.T. Kirkpatrick. They nicknamed him Kirk or the, the Great Knock. Kirkpatrick was a vehement atheist and solidified the atheism that Lewis was already involved in. Temptation accompanied him. With the atheism came, there's no right and wrong. I can do whatever I want. And he launched into uh, eroticism and the occult with abandon. And all the while, the church was just a sentimental monument of irrelevance when it came to what his ultimate thirst was, he thought. I'd really encourage you to start digging into some of Lewis's stuff, especially if you're a skeptic. And that could mean you're a follower of Christ or not yet. Some followers of Christ. In fact, Lewis would say good, healthy skepticism should stay with you really your whole life because it, it makes you continually dig deeper into the substance of the gospel. But I'd love for us to talk a little bit more about Lewis and just to learn a little bit. And we've got a, a treat, a friend of mine named Max McLean, who's the artistic director and founder of Fellowship for Performing Arts, headquartered in New York City. I've known Max for a number of years. It's devoted to bringing quality, world-class theater with a, uh, a, a Christian worldview. And years ago, Max was doing one-man plays, reciting the Gospel of Mark in dramatic fashion, won awards for that. The entire Gospel of Mark, or Genesis. That's where I first met Max years ago when he was doing Mark. FPA has since uh, done a number of C.S. Lewis's works, the Screwtape Letters. Over 400,000 people have seen it, award-winning, great divorce. But now he's on tour with C.S. Lewis on stage, the most reluctant convert. And plays in th theaters and, and uh, like the Bob Carr and other, but he, we known each other. He said, hey, instead of doing that, like to, because of the gift that we have here of such a phenomenal facility, they're using this, but rarely do they do churches. So since he's here this afternoon, I said, it would be great for us to get to know Lewis a little bit more. Would you be willing to just hang with us for a few minutes during our services on Sunday morning? And, um, and I said, I'll, I'll pay for a golf game sometime for you. They said, absolutely. So in a minute, you're going to meet Max McLean, who's not only a, an actor who portrays C.S. Lewis, but also somebody who's passionate about Lewis and is, is a scholar when it comes to Lewis and his words. But before 
you meet him, I ask him if we could play a clip from the play this afternoon that talks about, this is Lewis describing when he was 14 years old and had just abandoned Christianity completely and officially. And uh, he talks a little bit about why and what was going on in him. So take a look at this clip and then I'll invite Max up. Oh, I became a vigorous debunker and argued, there's no proof for any religion and that Christianity is not even the best. No religion was invented to explain things that terrified primitive man. Thunder, pestilence, snakes. <laughs> well, what could be more natural than to suppose they were animated by spirits and that by singing songs and making sacrifices one might appease them? Great men such as Heracles and Odin were thought to be gods after their death. Hence, after the death of a Hebrew philosopher, Yeshua, whose name we have corrupted into Jesus, a cult sprang up and Christianity begat. Just another mythology among many. Oh, these superstitions always held by common people, but educated thinking ones have always stood outside it, conceding to it only out of convenience. And I was not prepared to believe in a bogey who would torture me forever because I failed to live up to an impossible standard. <laughs> it's great stuff. Would you welcome Max McLean? Max, come up. Great, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Should I sit here? You yes. sit right there. So, Max. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking some time out because you've got a script to memorize for this afternoon, right? Yes, I do. Right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I've got a couple hours. Chop, chop. <laughs> uh, why? Welcome. So, and by the way, before we get started, yesterday was this gentleman's birthday. So happy birthday. Yeah. To I've had far too many. <laughs> far too many. Yes. So, we'll keep that to ourselves. <laughs> so why? Why has Lewis had such an impact on you? Well, uh, I, uh, he was an adult convert, uh, 1931, he's 32 years old. I'm an adult convert, uh, 23 years old. And uh, he became my spiritual guide. You know, when I was sitting here enjoying worship, I realized what a strange phenomenon that is for most people. To, to be in here praising God is, is a huge leap for a lot of people, and now, and I was there, and and uh, so that the closing that leap uh, is not easy for a lot of people, and uh, and so and one of the things I've noticed in in uh, in culture is uh, is how much uh, culture values skepticism, uh, and of course Christianity makes. Uh, certainty uh, it, it asserts a certain truth and so in order to get to that bridge Lewis was the one that helped me to do that so with the bridge this this bridge between you and me and the great stream yes <laughs> uh, the steps that Lewis took towards that stream were very deliberate calculated but they were they were not easy steps there are a number of them, but I'm going to mention just a few today and have Max comment on some of those, and I'll bring some comments. But 
When you think about not just Lewis's steps towards Aslan Stream, but yours, wherever you are, maybe you're a follower of Jesus or not yet, what does it look like? What are some of the steps necessary to get there? What are the things that we need to grapple with? One of the biggest for Lewis was this whole notion of grappling with suffering versus God's goodness. It, with the amount of suffering that exists on this planet, how can God be good? Would you say that was probably his biggest? It was by far his biggest. It is still the biggest in the world because, you know, his own experience, and you, you talked about it earlier, he lost his mother when he was eight. He had a terrible relationship with his father. Uh, he, uh, he suffered uh, probably PTSD during uh, the Great War, World War I, where he said he saw horribly smashed men still moving about like crushed beetles. Uh, I mean, that's really vivid uh, imagery. And so as a result of those experience in his mature atheism, he concluded that either there is no God behind the universe, a God indifferent to good and evil, or worse, an evil God. Mm. And it's from that perspective that the play begins to break all that down. Right. And you can yeah. take it from there. So, Mere Christianity, I've read this book, I'm, who knows how many times, so many followers of Christ mm -hmm. have been impacted by it. That would probably be one of the books I'd recommend starting, as I, I mentioned. But he says this, it's regarding this whole notion of suffering and evil being present in the universe, that for a long time, he used as evidence for not taking a step toward the stream, saying, okay, I'm not going to acknowledge him as the, the bridge to that stream. But he finally came around, and this is how he describes it in mere Christianity. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. In other words, when we say there's evil, where do we get the notion that something's evil, that something's not right? He goes on to say, what I was comparing, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal, but a fish would not feel wet. Why do we think something's wrong? Because there's something else going on. He, he concludes, he says, of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. So this notion that suffering existed was something that he delved deeply into. A couple of, couple of his works, he deals with it intellectually. If, if that's where you are right now in your journey with a book called The Problem of Pain. But then years later, after the death of his wife, Joy, he dealt with it emotionally, this whole notion of suffering in a book called Grief Observed. And so if I'm taking a step towards this stream, I've got to engage with Aslan. And I've got to grapple with this whole notion that suffering does exist in the world. Does that cancel out that God is good? And Christianity never, never pretends to say that we're exempt from suffering, nor does it deny suffering. In John 16, we've talked before about Jesus saying, in this world, you will have trouble. It's still a fallen world, but I've overcome and my goodness will prevail. So that's one step I, I must grapple with to, to engage. If I'm going to drink that water, 
confidently engaging with that. Here's another, another step. It has to do with religion, so many religions being out there versus one way. And the, a lot of us deal with this. Okay, wait a minute, there's so many religions and you're gonna say that there's one? In fact, Lewis is, is not just hinting at that, he is screaming it with Aslan's statement, there's only, there's no other string. There's no, so talk about that a little bit, Max, in terms of how he was impacted by this whole notion of so many religions, why is Christianity so special? Well, when he, uh, you know, his, his movement was from atheism to theism to Christianity, and he, he really had a big uh, challenge from going from, from theism uh, in a personal God and, and actually would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the God of Islam, the God of the Jews. But uh, one of the, the, the big uh, point that moved him forward was the fact that Chesterton pointed out to him that no great moral teacher, someone that claimed to be a great moral teacher, ever claimed to be God. Not Moses, not Mohammed, not Plato, not Buddha, not one. Uh, and, and you know, the kinds of things Jesus said that uh, uh, before Abraham was, I am, I've come to judge, I will come back to judge the world. I was at the, be you know, I was, uh, I uh, the sense of at, with God in the beginning, all of these uh, extraordinary statements led to the conclusion that Lewis makes so beautifully that, that how do you deal with this person, Jesus? <laughs> you know, either uh, if, if, if Christianity, if, 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 if Jesus' statements are false, Christianity is of no importance. If true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. <laughs> So he knew he had to deal with the person of Jesus. So in your journey and mine, as we're going towards Aslan's stream, so to speak, that doubt, that wondering, okay, is, is Christianity really the only way? And aren't all religions the same? Investigate it, spend some time. Uh, our friend Ravi uh, Zacharias, mm -hmm. a buddy that we both have engaged with over the years, talks about, he says, What's the popular notion is that all religions are fundamentally similar, but superficially different. But the truth of the matter is all religions are fundamentally different and superficially similar. There might be some things there. And so expose those, look at those, because the contradictions that exist, I have to dismiss those contradictions uh, by either swan dive into the Baha'i faith of saying nothing matters, there's no ultimate truth, or I begin, I have to start saying A and B, they cannot coexist. One has got to be true and one is not, and begin to grapple with that. And the more that I do, the more solid, Lewis says, Christianity is. It's not just a pipe dream. But then there's a third step that he took. There were many others, but we're just cover, co covering a few. It had to do with this whole notion of right and wrong and relativism. Mm -hmm. He says, I've got to grapple with uh, the relativism, meaning there is no such thing as right and wrong, or is there such a thing as right and wrong? And that was something that catapulted him into experimenting with everything and finally one day well he was he came uh, around. yeah he was a, a a materialist and that meant that every uh every uh 
everything that happened is explainable going back to the first cause through natural causes of the laws of physics and biochemistry. And he took, you know, he was, he said he was a hardcore materialist, but he, the reason he was that was because he wanted to be left alone. That's what he wanted. He said, in order for me to be morally left alone, meaning I don't, I'm not accountable to anyone, I had to live in this universe of atoms and to sing hymns to the, uh, to, uh, sing hymns to the joys of atheism. And then, of course, his, uh, later in his life, uh, one of his friends, and this is a, a constant theme throughout the play, is how very specific people God put in his life really moved him towards that. And one of his friends, uh, Owen Barfield, asked him, do you believe logic and reason brings forth, uh, brings forth truth? Uh, and he goes, I do. Are your moral and aesthetic judgments valid, meaningful? He said, they are. Well, if that's true, then materialism has to be abandoned. Uh, and he goes back because if that's true, then all our minds are, are random atoms colliding in skulls. And so when, when Lewis got that, that picture in his head, he said that just can't be true. Yeah. So this morning I was actually, I went back, an interview I saw a long time, I read, I read the transcript of a long time ago, PBS interviewed Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, a physician, a geneticist, he's the, uh, somebody said if, if mapping human DNA is the holy grail of science, Francis Collins is King Arthur. A brilliant man came to Christ when he was 28 years old, and he says he told the PBS in this interview, C.S. Lewis, and his writings were paramount to him in his uh, in his embrace of Christianity, especially when it comes to this whole notion of abandoning materialism, relativism, and embracing there is such a thing as right and wrong. And he said this in the interview. He says, if I'm walking down the riverbank and a man is drowning, even if I don't know how to swim very well, I feel this urge that the right thing to do is to try to save that person. Evolution would tell me exactly the opposite, preserve your DNA. Who cares about the guy who's drowning? He's one of the weaker ones, let him go. It's your DNA, it's your DNA that needs to survive. And Collins said, and yet that's not what's written within me. Where does that notion of right and wrong come from? So for Lewis, that was another step toward Aslan's stream of saying, okay, there, there is such a thing as right and wrong. Where does that come from? Here, here's a fourth, uh, a fourth step, has to do with the notion of myth. Lewis was a professor of Renaissance and medieval literature, and he struggled with his myth versus the great story. He was always wrestling between those two. And then finally, J.R. Tolkien helped him out and said, Christianity yes. is the ultimate myth that all other, but it's the true myth. Uh, this goes back to Lewis's childhood when uh, he said, I, I couldn't read the Gospels because, uh, as an adult, because he, it, it, he had all these stained glass associations that it felt so medicinal. He felt like he ought to feel this and that about Jesus, and he just simply couldn't do it. And so that, that made him unable to take the, the Gospel seriously as he was moving towards faith. 
he'd already believed in God, but he hadn't quite believed in Jesus, but he wasn't ready to, to look at the gospel story. Uh, that was until he met J.R.R. Tolkien at a very famous uh, talk one night when he said, I simply, you know, how can the life and death of someone else 2,000 years ago help us here and now? And, uh, and I'll try to quote, the, quote this uh, directly from the play. Uh, Tolkien said to Lewis, Jack, when you meet a god sacrificing himself in a pagan story like Dionysius or Boulder or Osiris or even a fa fairy tale, you like it very much and are mysteriously moved by it provided you meet it anywhere except in the Gospels. Then the, the clincher was, then he said, Jack, the story of Christ is a myth working on us in the same way as other myths with one tremendous difference. It really happened. And for some reason that conversation took the scales off of Lewis's eyes and he began to read the gospel looking at the heroic story of Jesus and then of course the other things we mentioned how could a man say these kinds of things about himself uh, unless they were in, unless they were true right and uh, some of you have heard of Addison's walk that's where that discussion happened with Tolkien and Hugo Dyson but it's this notion of guys the gospel is not just proposition it's also plot and Lewis was drawn into the plot, the great story. For years he had, he had accused Christianity of being this fairy tale, this pretend thing that, that promotes sentimentality in Christians and feel good. And then all of a sudden he realizes, oh my word, all of the myths with a small M that, that I've taught, that I've read, that we enjoy, all the great stories you and I have, the reason that we like story is because embedded in us is, is this true north draw to the great story of which all the other stories are uh, reflections of. All right, here, there's, here's one last one, and obviously plenty more, but it was, it was the one that took Lewis the longest, but it was the kingpin, obviously, in him diving into the stream of Jesus, the stream of Aslan, and it had to do with who Jesus is. Is he a good Jesus, or is he the Lord Jesus? Is he just a good man, or is he who he claimed to be? And this is one of the famous quotes from, uh, from Mere Christianity. He says, uh, and if you're, if you're engaging uh, with whether or not Christianity is true or worth investigating, start with what he exhorts right here. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. How prevalent is that even today? Back to Lewis. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. When I was in college, I read these words. They hit me between the eyes. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us and he did not intend to. 
And so that's why in 1931, C.S. Lewis embraced the incarnation and said, Jesus, you're the keeper of the stream. 20 years later, he wrote about it in the silver chair. But a couple of years before that, an equally big step in which he was converted, so to speak, to theism, to belief in God. And so I asked Max, can we play one more clip before we let you guys go? And so we're gonna play, it's about two and a half minutes, and it's Lewis describing that night in, in what was referred to as the Trinity term at Oxford when he moved from being an atheist to being someone who actually believed in God. Take a look. All I ever wanted was not to be interfered with, to call my soul my own. Keep out, private. This is my business. Let no one talk glibly about the comforts of religion. Oh, is it a small thing to give yourself blindly to a guide who on his own showing may very well be leading you to poverty, ridicule, death. Oh, I knew I would not allow myself to do anything intolerably painful. I would be reasonable. Would it be reasonable? No assurance was offered. It was all or nothing. As the dry bones are shook in Ezekiel's dreadful valley, the absolute spirit began to stir and heave and throw off its grave clothes. He said, I am the Lord. I am that I am. I am. You must picture me alone in my room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term 1929. I gave in and admitted that God is God, knelt and prayed perhaps that night, the most dejected, reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> I did not then see the divine love that would accept a prodigal on such terms, kicking, struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction, looking for a chance to escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. His compulsion is my liberation. <laughs> <laughs>